Hello, Diversify listeners. We have a very interesting episode for you today with a junior doctor chatting about the NHS with some funny and sometimes a bit gruesome stories. Quick disclaimer, some details have been changed or removed in this episode to protect patient confidentiality. Also, you will hear some talk about something called chronic fatigue syndrome. I just wanted to flag up that there is debate on the appropriateness of this term. The ME Society in the UK prefers the term ME and believes chronic fatigue syndrome is actually a number of different conditions, all characterised by similar symptoms. When listening to the episode, you might come to the conclusion that it's primarily a mental health issue. It's not. The World Health Organisation classes it as a neurological disease. Thanks for listening to episode 5 of Diversify. Big thanks again to Tramp Theatre Company for sponsoring the transcripts, which will be on their way soon. And keep diversifying your mind. It's important. Turn out the light. Open the curtains. Go and do useful things you And I'm Kate. And welcome to Diversify. Woot. This is episode five, isn't it, Kate? Um, yep. We think. We think this is episode five. How are you, Kate? I'm dosed up on, on Cody's. Kate is high. Legally high. I also have this sort of like essential oil that I discovered for stomach cramps, which I've been using. And uh, it's called Clary Sage. And I was kind of going around thinking it was like this miracle cure um and i found out recently that there's another word for it which is salvia which is the legal high that people used to smoke at festivals when we were teenagers says a lot about my childhood that i've never heard of it yeah well if it helps i've got tonsillitis so you win barney is she dying hard to say uh, I'd have to do a full history and examination, but uh, I suspect probably not. It sounds like you've already seen your GP. And they didn't give me any drugs. Um, in case you were wondering, this is our guest today. Say hi, Barney. Hi, Barney. Barney is a doctor or junior doctor? I'm a doctor. Yay, everyone clap. Well, everyone that's not a consultant is a junior doctor. It's a bit of a misleading term that I think we're going to try and change. You have junior doctors who've been doctors for eight plus years who are still technically junior doctors but yes i am a core medical trainee in my first year of that program everyone does two foundation years which is what i've completed and then you choose basically what sort of big boy or girl doctor you want to be so i, I want to be a, a hospital doctor um other people like general practice and that's where they set their sales other people go for doing some choppy choppy with a surgical um Technical term. (laughs) Um, And then there are some other niche bits and bobs like anaesthetists who put people to sleep and do crosswords and occasionally, you know, put tubes down people's airways and stop them from dying. But yeah, no, this is sort of where I've set my course. So you go to university, you have how many years of medical school? Depends on the medical school. I did six. Uh, That includes a one year Bachelor of Science that they sort of throw in for the fun of it. Yeah. Yeah, so six in total. Good. That they throw in for the fun of it. When you've decided to get a real job after after saving everyone's lives, yeah? Well, I mean, it's still a pretty competitive field, so it's good to have every back pocket degree you can have when you're fighting for those London jobs or wherever it is you particularly want to hang your hat. So do you work in a hospital now? 
Yeah, I do, yeah. Being all over the shop in terms of Essex and East London. Oh, bet Newham Hospital is where that guy went when he got shot in the head out my front door. He'll probably have gone to the Royal London Trauma Centre, I imagine. Touche. <laughs> Touche. He did get shot in the head. Yeah. It was really dark. I had a statistic the other day about um, tuberculosis being really quite high. Yes. So Newham, the borough of Newham is a perfect storm of TB. You've got a huge turnover of uh, immigrant population. You've got an enormous amount of poverty. I think previously Newham's been one of the most impoverished boroughs in the country. Um, And you've got a huge amount of homelessness, which is really not being dealt with at all all very well. Yeah, Newham's definitely... We're in Stratford right now. We're, We're recording the podcast I've lived here on and off for quite a few years and the difference between the kind of rich side and the poor side is quite drastic. I live on the poorer side behind a big iron gate, so I'm part of the problem. (laughs) You have a concierge. I have a concierge and I do have a doctor's surgery across the road. And a Tesco Express. And a Sainsbury's. Living the dream. Other supermarkets are available. (laughs) So, you work in a hospital. What do you do in that hospital? So, I work on a medical ward. I predominantly treat patients who've got things wrong with their endocrine system. So, that's things like diabetes, uh, other weird and wonderful rare things, Addison's disease, Cushing syndrome, all sorts of other pretty niche things that wouldn't be very fun to talk about at length. Uh, Occasionally, (laughs) we see some horrible of people whose diabetes has been poorly controlled and that's always a pretty grim thing to see. I've done a vascular surgery job which is where you chop off legs and feet and what have you and I think the highlight of that job was throwing a person's leg in the bin and the nurse then dropping that bin because they didn't clock how heavy this leg was going to be. But you've also used things like maggot therapy Maggot therapy. Yeah. This is my favourite. <laughs> we used to do it free range style where you open up some gangrenous, horrible wound, sprinkle maggots in, cover them up with some sort of dressing, come back a day or two later, and the maggots would all have quadrupled in size, and you'd be left with nothing but fresh, pink, healthy skin. And Kate is Holly's laughing at my face right I'm now. I'm laughing at Holly's face right now, which is just um, like... This is in 2018. This is in 2018. People live with ga- more. People live with maggots. Well, this is a treatment. So in the hospital ward, if someone's leg has become horribly gangrenous and the flesh is rotting away, you can apply maggots to them and the maggots will secrete a little enzyme that breaks down the rotten flesh and then the maggots will slurp up all that and it will make them grow bigger and stronger. Um, the maggots? We are... used to do it, as I say, free range. <laughs> free... Those maggots free were range allowed range. to... Uh... Well, they weren't allowed to, but they would occasionally leak out of the side of the dressing. And there have been certainly many cases on wards where you'd dress old Mr Watkins' manky foot with a load of maggots at nine o'clock at night and the next morning you'd find maggots galloping all over the shop. Just wandering about the hallway. (laughs) With their many legs. (laughs) Not a common occurrence, but it certainly did happen. We now put them in little tea bag things so they can't escape and they can still sort of secrete their goo through the tea bag and slurp up the stuff that comes Caged maggots. Um, So 
These people are awake yeah, and yeah, there are just maggots eating their leg. Haven't you ever been to one of those... Uh, yes, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, where the fish eat Of your... course I haven't been to one of them. <laughs> Especially not now. I'm a friggin' vegan. Yeah, so you should allow the fish to eat you. They get immediately killed straight after because it's dangerous to let those little fish live because they might have diseases from the people they've just eaten. So they basically have to throw them away in a toxic dump, which you... is why they don't do it anymore. You heard it here first. I think that depends on the health and safety in the country you're going to. I think there have certainly been some places I've gone to where these fish are by mass mostly human feet. <laughs> oh. Anyway, slight tangent. That was a gnarly opening. <laughs> Very fascinating, though. If you'd have told me that people still have, like, maggots... Isn't it interesting, though, that a good cure is just a good cure and there's no point in creating a synthetic version of that when it works perfectly? Yeah. We don't use leeches anymore. We just get people to donate blood when they've got... I think there's a rare, there's a rare condition called hemochromatosis uh, where you get iron overload and pretty much the only cure is to go and donate blood on a very regular basis. Well, that's a strategy to get more blood donors. Win-win. <laughs> um. Dear NHS, we've figured out your blood problem. Just find all the people with one particular disorder and stick them in a blood donation van. We're not rounding them up. <laughs> We live in tough times. So, um, one of the reasons that we asked you on here is because there was a lot of noise in the media a few years ago about the junior doctor's strike. And I'm not entirely sure that everyone understands exactly what it was. So, for the benefit of our listeners, could you explain uh, what the strike was about? I'll do my best. It's a horrible mess of a strike and the negotiations and the way that it was all handled by the BMA, the Union for Doctors, is um, not simple to explain and there are lots of differing views about it. The gist is that there was plans for the doctor's contract to be renegotiated and those plans sort of started in 2012 and they grumbled along. And then the uh, Conservative Party came into power. Yay! with a manifesto and one of the pledges on the manifesto was a seven day nhs the evidence they used to make it sound like this was a good idea was from a to be fair pretty well run study that in absolutely no way suggested that we should have a seven day nhs it said that there was a variation in the mortality of patients depending on which day of the week they came in and distinctly said that this is not based specifically on anything to do with the staffing levels on the weekend or anything like that. They specify in it that that's not the conclusion that should be drawn from their study. Regardless, it was enough of a flagship manifesto pledge for the Tories to go with it. And uh, Jeremy Hunt was on the bound to uh, bring it about. Now, he didn't try, in many doctors' opinions, to bring it about in any sort of meaningful sense. The... uh, Changes that were hugely argued about and that caused the junior doctor strike were changes made to the paid scales of doctors when they work out of hours. So at the weekend, for example, or doing late shifts or doing night shifts and what have you. And the main issue that a lot of people had with the changes was that it would effectively mean that you were paid less per hour for what we would normally think as non-sociable hours. So weekends, which... If your colleagues from university went and became nine to five bankers or accountants or whatever would laugh at coming in on a Saturday or Sunday, 
were being deemed as totally acceptable working hours and you weren't being paid more for them as compensation. The gist was that we did this thing where we were going to change doctors, rotors, to work over the weekend, but they didn't do anything about having social care or radiologists or anyone else in at the weekend. They sort of half-assed it. Is this including... Because obviously there's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week A&E. I think my question is, are hospitals open 24-7 anyway? Yeah, so if so you're that, staying overnight in hospital, you're there over the weekend anyway. There was actually quite an interesting comment about this, which was that in the number of weeks after Jeremy Hunt loudly publicised about how you were more likely to die if you came into hospital on a Saturday or a Sunday, lots of people decided not to come into hospital on the Saturday and the Sunday, came in two days later, and because they hadn't sought prompt medical assistance, which is always available at your local accident emergency hospital, Prompt is perhaps sometimes generous, but there is always emergency medical attention available. These people were presenting with central crushing chest pain that had made them short of breath and didn't want to bother anyone, especially over the weekend. And by the time they came in on Monday morning, their heart tissue had died off and so did they. So there was... Horrible. Something that doctors colloquially are called the hunt effect as opposed to the weekend effect of uh, patients that misinterpreted the, I suppose you could call it scaremongering, that the uh, Tory party had been putting out there and uh, come off worse for it and sometimes fatally so. It's the power of words, isn't it? We all keep going on about actions, but when people in power say things, they have real consequences. And for some people... That's literally made something that could have been salvageable. The reason they died. Fuck you, Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> you know that Jeremy Hunt is now a new Cockney rhyming slang. Oh, for, oh, I see. That's not hard to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. What impact has this had on you and your peers? On a day-to-day basis, what impact has this had? No one goes into medicine wanting to earn the megabucks. If you want to earn a lot of money with five six years of postgraduate education, medicine is not the way to go. And certainly if you want to have a work-life balance, again, it's not a good choice. From my perspective, the pay grades haven't really been an influence in my quality of life and the satisfaction I get from my work isn't from the money I get for it. The reason that the NHS is and the staffing in the NHS in such a crisis is there is a huge shortage of doctors for the services that we are trying to provide to people. We have an ageing population. It's actually stopped ageing over the last year or two with a first ever reduction in our life expectancy. That's actually attributed by a lot of analysts to the absolute slashing of social care we've seen over the last half decade or so. Wow. Yeah. Also, we talked in our first episode about a book called The Spirit Level, which says that equality is better for everyone. And one of the things it says is when the gap between the richest and the poorest is the least, then it's better for everyone. And when the gap between the richest and the poorest is the most, then it is detrimental to everyone, including the richest. And the gap between the rich and the poor has been getting increasingly bad. And therefore everybody's life expectancy then starts to stagnate. Should that put my little socialist thing in there? No, I mean, the northern European countries that have better quality on lots of measuring sticks of it also have pretty good qualities of life. I mean, 
It's also true that the further away from the equator, the less vitamin D you get, the generally sadder you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. Yeah, no, it's uh, interesting. So I read something recently about how many doctors are taking career breaks at the moment just because the NHS is affecting their mental and probably physical health as well. So they're going travelling and taking a break to go back to university. And I read an article that said that people were calling for them to pay back their fees. I mean, that's outrageous, right? It's bullshit. It's ridiculous. I have to read the article to assess the validity of this, but it sounds like a load of crap. Um, (laughs) As soon as you qualify as a doctor and you do your first year or two as a foundation doctor, you, as I said earlier, end up on one of the many conveyor belts of heading towards being a consultant of this, that or the other. Lots of boxes you need to tick, both in your day-to-day working life and in terms of developing your CV and taking expensive exams to the tune of £500, £600 out of your own pocket. There's a, a lot to be said about what happens when you're not encouraging people to be in training posts. And when you've got an environment where you have a chronically understaffed hospital, many of them, you end up with the doctors that are left working three times as hard or covering three times as many doctors as they're supposed to be. So they become overworked, they become more stressed, they take more sick leave, or they throw in the towel altogether. And then you've got doctors covering four people's jobs. Do you think this has been exacerbated by things like Brexit and just the growing rhetoric against immigrants coming into this country, supposedly sponging off the system, but actually all of the evidence is pointing towards the opposite? I think a huge percentage of our doctors and nurses are actually immigrants. Do you think that's made a difference? Absolutely. And we are sending a huge message to all of these highly skilled medical professionals that they're not welcome. Hmm. That's just doctors. If you think about the huge numbers of nurses, of healthcare assistants, cleaners, of admin staff that make up our National Health Service, kicking out everyone that is earning below a certain threshold who came to Britain seeking opportunity, seeking to contribute to our health service and giving them the cold shoulder. I mean, it sounds like a pretty shit idea. (laughs) I agree. I agree too. And also, I think she might have changed her mind, but Theresa May was originally not going to put nurses onto the list of exceptions for the um, wage cap. This is non-EU countries, but obviously might become EU countries after Brexit. Um, People have to be earning more than a certain amount and nurses don't earn that in general but there are a couple of exceptions and she didn't put nursing as an exception so one of our most needed professions was not on the list of professions that an exception could be made that you could come to our country even if you weren't going to be earning is it she or is it they they the idiots or is it her specifically that wrote this list um, this was before she was Prime Minister. This was when it was... Her job. Literally her job. Yeah. yeah. I think, but I'm pretty sure. This mm. is a podcast of I think, but I'm pretty sure to today. To be fair, politics is moving so fast. In recent memory, I can remember a time before Brexit happened and David Cameron was still the Prime Minister. It was definitely before she was Prime Minister because it was when I was living in Camden. There you go. And that was pre-Brexit. Those were better times. Where would you go if you were to take a career break? A desert island discs with Holly and Kate. 
I don't know. There's a lot of options. It's a big world. I took a pretty boring choice for my elective. I went to Australia. I went to Perth. That's not boring. Spiders there can kill you. Jesus. It's true. Um, actually, it was the methamphetamine that was really doing a, a number on the local population in Perth. There are <laughs> a lot of what? meth enthusiasts there. We met at least one person who took out his methamphetamine rage with a machete and we were plucking pieces of machete out of a man's skull. Was he a live man? It wouldn't have been worth our time to do it if he wasn't. Touché. So that was an interesting... Uh, Did he inter- survive? Yeah. Bloody... I, do you know, can I just say, it really fascinates me. You can be, like, stabbed a little bit in the leg and you're like, well, that's okay, it's just my thigh Artery. and bleed <sighs> out and die. Yeah. And then you can be shot in the skull, macheted in the head and survive. With, like, minimal like, brain clean injury. through, yeah. Bafflingly amazing and amazingly baffling. Don't try it at home, though. No. Dear listeners, I've just said words are important. <laughs> <laughs> Please, don't try this at home. Davina McCall would be like, yes. Oh, I forgot about that show. So you've been to Perth and dealt with machetes, but if you could sack it all off and spend a year travelling, nothing to do with being a doctor... I've heard South America's pretty baller. My mum's just come back from Cuba and she's, like, obsessed with it. Like, she's not a communist, but I keep seeing (laughs) Cuba books everywhere and I just, I would love her to, at 65, get, like, a Che Guevara tattoo or something, (laughs) denounce capitalism and live in a commune somewhere in the woods, in Epping Forest. That's it, Mum. I'd love to live in a commune in the woods in Epping Forest. Really frigging Make, like, a... Charleston style community and make songs around the campfire and grow vegetables and hand them out to passers-by. So Thanks, Barney, <laughs> I'm going to give you the uh, complete works of Shakespeare and I'm going to give you the Bible. No, not really. I really did not know where you are going with that. That was a Desert Island Discs reference. Well done. Well played. Thank you. So he said South America. I'm with you. Apparently it's beautiful as well. It's a better adjective than Paula. I, d- I don't know if I agree. It reminds me of a story I was told by my friend who has done some surgery recently and there was a patient who had what's called testicular torsion and that's a a fancy way of saying that within the scrotal sac the testicle had twisted upon itself blocked off its own blood supply and there were only short minutes and hours to do some surgery otherwise what he would have lost his balls otherwise he would have lost his ball oh god whilst consenting the patient my colleague looked them in the eye formed this sentence in his head gave it a once over and said if you sign this we can get the ball rolling regarding the consent form whatever gets you through the day i suppose when you're (laughs) having to take people's balls off um so barney a day in the life of a junior doctor go well you wake up at six o'clock in the evening you have some breakfast then you go to work You'll get to work for 8 o'clock in the evening where a bunch of very tired day doctors will tell you all about how their day went. All the patients are unwell on the ward, all the new patients that have just come in that they haven't seen yet, and all the jobs that need to be done either on the wards or the new patients that are coming in. You'll then spend another 13 hours in the hospital until 9 o'clock in the morning where you will tell all the lovely day doctors who've had a nice night's sleep all about your night all the unwell patients that you've been looking after, all the cardiac arrests that you've attended, all the patients that are either going to do fine if we carry on treating them, all the patients that are going to die and we need to make comfortable. Then you go to bed after your 10 minute to hour and a half commute home and you wake up at six o'clock. You'd repeat that up to 
I did a seven day stretch last week. So that was, as I say, seven 13 hour night shifts in a row, preceded by a 13 hour day shift. So that's more or less how, a, how an on-call day will go for a doctor. There is a nine to five side of the job where you rock up at nine o'clock, do a ward round with your consultant that makes all the decisions that a consultant of their many years of experience can make. And over the course of the rest of the day, you enact those decisions. If there is just one of you and the consultant isn't doing a ward round that day, you drink lots of coffee and you do the job of five, including the consultant, and you hope for the best. You've told me quite a few times recently that you've had to stay even later. Well, I think I gave you guys a pretty broad starting time of this evening. I was supposed to finish at five and, as is not unusual, stayed an hour and a half late, I think it was today. What's your most gruesome story? I think it depends on what you find gruesome. I've had patients come in from A&E with fist-sized chunks missing from their shoulder when they've been shotgunned. I've had people come in who've been sprayed with acid, which is an increasingly uh, prevalent issue. I mean, I've, I've had a, a pretty impressive story with a C-section that went, well, it was an interesting C-section, certainly. There's a, uh, a patient who was 24, 25 weeks or so pregnant, and there was a complication where there was some bleeding from the lining of the womb and the placenta. I won't give any details that could reveal who this patient is or where this happened. This is a emergency, as you can probably guess. And an emergency C-section was required. Now, that's always a bit of a frantic operation. The baby was taken from the womb after opening the abdomen. And still in the amniotic sac was handed over to the paediatricians who popped the sack, took the baby out and checked for signs of life. There was none. And so they put a tiny little tube down the airway of the baby. They do two fingers compressing the chest and they bring this sputtering little baby back to life. And that was amazing. And then they carted the baby off to the baby doctor ward. <laughs> Meanwhile, mum's 24-25 week uterus that wasn't expecting to have to do very much apart from get bigger and bigger Continued to bleed lots and lots and lots. Lots of things were done to try and help this, to help the uterus contract down as it normally would after giving birth. Eventually this was accomplished and everyone breathed a big sigh of relief. They took the first suture and were about to suture up the abdominal wall when this poor patient started feeling very sick and threw up all over the anaesthetist. Oh God. Now throwing up all over the anaesthetist is not pleasant, but it's not the end of the world. What did happen as this patient threw up all over the anaesthetist was that by increasing the pressure in her abdomen, she forced her entire large and small bowel to be delivered through the same hole that the baby had just come out of. Everyone sort of takes a moment to appreciate how absolutely crazy this looks. And then the cool-headed obstetrician starts squidging the intestines back into the abdomen, and eventually they're all back in place, and he pulls out the suture to... Repair the abdominal Can I just ask, what's a suture? Uh, like the needly bit. That oh, you... like a needle that yes. sews it all together. Yeah. So we get the big needle and we put our first suture in to the abdominal wall. And the patient vomits again <gasps> all over the anaesthetist, no. who only just cleaned themselves up a little bit. And once more, the intestines explode out of the abdomen just as the quick-thinking obstetrician pulls the needle away. Now, the mother in this particular instance was getting a little bit bored of having been in theatre for so long and starts saying, 
why isn't this done yet? I want to go and see my baby. No one had sort of let on what had been going on. Jesus, so she didn't even know? Well, the big blue curtain that makes you not appreciate how much of a big pile of meat you are uh, was still up. And everyone said, oh, no, we'll, we'll just be a little while. But a nurse, possibly a nursing student, says, this is my time to shine. And they go round to the head of the patient and they say, your intestines have actually just popped out of your tummy. So the reason it's taking so long is that the uh, surgeon's having to squish them back in. So you'll be able to see your baby in almost no time at all. <laughs> at this point, the anaesthetist thought you should probably put the patient to sleep. The abdomen was sewn up. And everyone lived happily ever after. That was so some a... sort of bedtime story that you just told us. He told it very well. It was. I felt like I was listening to an audio book. If only there had been a camera in this room, <laughs> because I was fully aware that my face must have been a picture. I was a C-section baby. Me too. My poor fucking mother. <sighs> my Eventually. God, that is... I'll tell you what, I've never been so happy that... I'm a lesbian who's made the choice to adopt if I ever have kids because I do not want anything like that to happen to me or my partner ever. But that's the worrying thing though because we're becoming more and more afraid of childbirths. We're too posh to push is the phrase. Interestingly, uh, you're actually reading This Is Going To Hurt by Peter Kay, aren't you? I am, yes. He is a uh, obstet- or he was a obstetrician. It was a pretty good one by all accounts. Uh, and it's a fantastic book that everyone should read. But one of the things he points out in the book is that actually an above average number of obstetricians choose to have a C-section themselves. So the old too posh to push adage is perhaps a little unfair on those that make that choice. There are lots of reasons and it's a complicated decision that you've got to make for yourself and discuss with your doctor. So, junior Dr. Humour. Oh, yeah. So, one of my colleagues used to work up in a trauma centre off the M1. You might have heard that there are occasionally some uh, acronyms that are thrown around in medicine. There's a, a very good book called The House of God that uses the, the acronym LOLMAD, which is a little old lady in no apparent distress. There is GOMERS, which is Get Out of My Emergency Room. Again, this is a, a really good book it's a work of fiction but it's very interesting i recommend it and we don't actually use these acronyms in our note-taking very often however in common parlance you do get the occasional acronym i've heard of fubar it's fucked up beyond all recognition (laughs) this is something that trauma surgeons use reasonably often of course now in that sort of situation you might want to employ the acronym FUBAR BUNDY which I hadn't heard before I've heard of FUBAR but I didn't know what BUNDY meant and this trauma surgeon colleague of mine said stands for fucked up beyond all recognition but unfortunately not dead yet (laughs) I'm going to try and make that take off I'm going to make that the new fetch oh don't be such a FUBAR BUNDY Like when your mate's dating somebody that you don't like and they're going through loads and loads of like relationship issues, but they just haven't got the courage to break up with them, you can be like, oh, they're going through a Fubar Bundy. I'm going to make that thing. Yeah, it's good. Um, so, as a doctor, do you get a lot of, oh, you're a doctor, I have a problem? I think pretty much every member of your seven-person house has at one point asked me to explain or look at one part of their body or the other. Uh, It's a strange existence being a doctor. 
it's tricky because there's always a point where you say, but you should see your GP. You always end up saying, I think you're dying. Well, I think that's a safe option, to be honest. <laughs> um, it deters people from asking you more. If your answer to every question is yes, it's probably terminal. Or you're pregnant. Well, I, I mean, I don't think I've thrown that one your way before. My GP asked if I was pregnant yesterday uh, when I went in for my tonsillitis, and I always just laugh. I didn't say it yesterday, but sometimes I'm just like, no, I'm very, very gay. <laughs> but my girlfriend did go in once, and it was really awful, actually. The male GP asked why she wasn't on contraception, and she explained. And he basically said, mm, you should definitely go on it anyway for when you get over it. <gasps> no, no way. way. Yeah, that um, is awful. What really a bad. unexpected response. So, quick fire round, Barney. Antibiotics, should we or shouldn't we? We should use them appropriately. We should be very aware that on a daily basis I see urine cultures or sputum cultures of bugs that are resistant to every single antibiotic that we have except one or two. That would have been absolutely unheard of even 10, 15 years ago. We should use them when they're needed. Antibiotics have helped hugely improve our life expectancy, especially in the context of severe infections. Um, one of the main breeding grounds for antibiotic resistance is actually the agricultural industry. Where they routinely give cattle and chickens an absolute cocktail of antibiotics to get over the fact that they're living in absolutely appalling conditions, ass to mouth. So, another reason for all you fuckers to go vegan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, homopathic medicine, what's that about? Really interesting one. When it was originally sort of promoted, there was a big outbreak of cholera. And before evidence-based medicine, which came on the scene about 100 years ago, we just sort of made it up as we went along. And medicine was a crock of shit. Homeopathy, which is in its actual context, suggests you should live a wholesome life free of sin and free of booze and excess. Uh, said that if you did that, you could supplement it with homeopathic medicines, which are, to all intents and purposes, pure water. Now, the treatment for cholera, which causes outrageous diarrhoea and loss of fluids, is water. So, that gave homeopathy a bit of a boost over the crocs of shit being spread by the medical profession at the time, who were suggesting everything from leeches to more leeches. So, homeopathy works in the sense that drinking lots of water is going to help with your outrageous diarrhoea. Beyond that, it has no scientific merit and has never been demonstrated to have any better effect than the placebo. Placebo, yeah. So I'm very interested in the idea that my mind affects body, body affects mind. How much of that are you allowed to believe if you're working as a doctor? Well, I don't think that's controversial. I think the, the mind is made out of the brain, which is part of the body, and the ways in which your mind will influence your body and your body will influence your mind are very well documented. Uh, for example, irritable bowel syndrome is a condition that affects between 10 and 20% of our population. There are studies which are very strange studies performed on strange medical student volunteers that involve putting balloons up their bottoms, inflating them and seeing how severely they react to the painful stimulus of that sort of thing. <sighs> And it shows that people who have IBS have more delicate bottoms 
and bowels that respond to being stretched with a much greater painful experience than for other people. That being said, it's a condition where some of the best treatments can be things like cognitive behavioural therapy. That's certainly true of things like chronic fatigue syndrome, where cognitive behavioural therapy and a reframing of your symptoms in your own mind... Really? CBT of chronic fatigue. Well, I feel quite strongly about this because my girlfriend has it and her brother can't get out of bed at the moment and everybody keeps saying chronic fatigue is it's all in your mind the mind is part of the body yeah Um, okay if there was another treatment that was proven to work better then that is what we would direct our patients to but the mind is very much a part of the body and cognitive behavioral therapy works for pretty much every condition that there is so if that's the best option that we have in terms of the evidence available to us then that's the option that we should recommend right we would absolutely love to have a magic pill that could make better, but it's a complex, complex condition. Would you agree that there is a culture when it comes to chronic fatigue that because CBT seems to have helped better than a lot of other things because we haven't found a proper cure for it yet, it's led to a culture of it's all in your mind? I think there's an element of truth to that. I think what a lot of doctors don't appreciate is that cognitive behavioural therapy helps with pretty much every condition. Uh, Yeah, but what's happened with chronic fatigue is there is a culture that it's almost a thing that you make up and it's not a physical thing that's affecting you, whereas actually it's a very physical thing that you cannot walk. A lot of stigma floating around. We are biological entities and the brain is a complicated thing. Cool. Um, Barney, can you give us some sunshine? So actually I think that Despite all of our criticisms of the current way that our previous and current health secretary has been handling the NHS, I think things are going to settle. What is going to happen is that all of the elderly, crumbly patients that can't survive waiting for a bed in a understaffed, underbedded, under-resourced hospital are going to die in their ambulances. All of those that need the prompt treatment that they can't receive and are too frail or delicate to survive waiting until they can receive it are going to slowly but surely be killed off by the financial neglect they're receiving. And the economic system of the healthcare environment will correct itself, inverted commas. The healthcare of our most vulnerable is going to keep deteriorating and they are going to keep dying sooner than they needed to until we don't have to look after them anymore and our taxes can go back into the top how many percent you can choose to name. Um, So that's what's going to happen. Everything's going to be fine because all of our old, crumbly grandparents are going to die. Well, that's fucking depressing. How about an actual ray of sunshine? Okay. I had quite an interesting call to the front door of the Amy department at the hospital I was working at. Whenever you hear a doctor's assistant to the front of A&E, you put on some gloves as your first reaction, which was a good shout in this instance. I went out into the waiting room and saw outside on the pavement beyond the waiting room a two-headed lady. The second head was protruding between her legs and was a small baby head that I ran over and, with the help of one of my nursing colleagues, helped deliver on the pavement outside the hospital in question. Uh, I was absolutely soaked with amniotic fluid, but 
No was, guts this time. Thankfully, no guts. It all came out the hole that nature has haphazardly designated as the one to go for as a first choice. Um, and everyone was happy and fit and well. So that was a nice little tale. That was better than the last Ray of Sunshine. I guess the, the Ray of Sunshine is, even if everybody's dying off, life still goes on. Right, plugs. Barney, apparently you have a blog. What's your blog? It's called brainsarecool.com. It's got some articles about consciousness thoughts about thoughts and I think there's one article about schizophrenia that some people quite liked. It's really interesting. I've read it and it's a really good read and very informative and do we say witty? No. No. He's not very funny. He's not a funny guy. Any Twitter or Instagram? I would just get requests to look at rashes so... (laughs) (laughs) Told you he was funny. Um, Kate. Kate, Lois, Elliot, two L's, two T's on every orifice. Oh, gross. Um, I am at our team Q, our as in the human race, team as in for the love of God, keep supporting Arsenal, and Q as in the one that comes after P. Diversify is on Twitter at DiversifyPod, on Instagram at DiversifyPodcast, or if you fancy being a bit more long-winded, you can email us at ourteamq at gmail.com. Don't forget to tell all your friends how awesome this podcast is and click that big button that says subscribe so that you can be well in the know with all the awesomeness that goes on here. So thank you for coming in, Barney, and to all our listeners out there, keep on listening. Keep on diversifying and we will see you next week. (laughs) Appropriate toilet break.